Well, let me ask you guys, how many of you can identify with this? I'm going to go, this is kind of a gut check. I'm not starting with like an easy, fun question. This is a tough question. How many of you find yourself getting stuck in a cycle in particular areas that you struggle in? Uh, it could be a variety of things. It could be a moral sin. It could be a financial sin. It could be thought patterns. It could be your choice of entertainment. It could be a million and one different things. But where you struggle, you fall, and then you feel guilt and shame, you repent, and then you do the whole thing over again on a regular basis in some area of your life. How many of you can identify with that? My hand is the first one up. I think tonight is going to bring us an enormous amount of freedom from Romans 6. I'm really excited about tonight's message. Um, you know, we've been walking through the book of the Bible that I think is the most important to understanding the gospel, that is the message and ministry of Christ, and it's, uh, it, it's the book of Romans. It's easy to get confused about the gospel. It's, it's, it, it's, it's easy to get flustered because the gospel is both too easy and too difficult for many to buy into. For the original Roman recipients, there was uh, confusion related to the ever-changing, young, transitional church that was changing by the day. You see, all the, all the Jews had been exiled from Rome and were returning after five years when uh, they received this letter from Paul to the church at Rome. And the tension uh, that we read about here in Romans is very simple. The purpose of the book is very simple. You see, Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism. So when the Jews returned after their five-year exile to Rome, the church had moved on reaching out to Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And all of a sudden, the church wasn't quite as Jewish. Because again, Christianity at that time was just seen as a sect of Judaism. So there were a lot of questions about Jewish customs, laws, and so on. Like, for example, did Gentile Christians need to be circumcised? Did they need to observe the Jewish Sabbath laws? Did they need to observe the Jewish dietary laws? In other words, the tension was building over whether or not Gentile Christians essentially needed to become Jewish before they started following Christ. So this was tearing apart the, univer the, the, the unity of the church. So Paul, led by, directed by the Holy Spirit, provides the fullest explanation of the gospel message that we have. That's why if I was deserted on, if I was on a... Uh, deserted island, and I could only have one book of the Bible, this would be the one I would choose. But like I said, while the letter has a unique reason for being sent, some things never change because the gospel, again, can be both too easy and too difficult for ones to buy. It can, be, it can seem too easy. You mean just by grace, we're saved, we receive this free gift of salvation, and that's it? And then at the same time, we're called to, to pick up our cross, take up our cross and follow him. And there's always been confusion around what does it take to please God? For these Roman Jewish Christians, it was do they need to become Jewish first to please God? But for us, it's, we have our own set of issues. For example, if you and I had a nickel for every time we heard someone say, I think God loves everyone and he wants all of them, he wants everyone to be happy so everybody should just leave everybody else alone and let them worship any God they want to. Does it really matter? Aren't all gods the same? 
Or similarly, don't all, all religious roads lead to the same God? Or certainly I'll go to heaven because I'm not that bad. I've never killed anyone. Or God helps those who help themselves. The list goes on, but all of these are false gospels. It, they're false gospels. They're not true. They're God made in our image, not the God of the Bible. So as Paul explained the gospel to the Romans, he addresses some of the questions that naturally come out of the gospel. The same kind of questions many, many that we have as well today. Uh, so let's read Romans 6 together here. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. And we'll see the, the question Paul addresses in the gospel. He's just been talking about salvation by grace through faith alone and not by works. He spent a long time talking about this. So then he makes this argument. What shall we say then? Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as, as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Lord Jesus, we cry out for freedom. We read these verses that many of us are very familiar with and they can go in one ear and out the other like the sound of a fan purring in the background. Lord, we need your grace. We need the illumination that you provide, Holy Spirit, that we might understand this, that it might rock our world and change us forever and inspire us, Lord, not with some motivational speech that we watch on YouTube kind of motivation, but, Lord, a deep Holy Spirit-driven motivation deep in our soul to be dead to sin, to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus because of your death and resurrection. Help us to live in this reality, not just, Lord, to, to know it's true, but to live in it and to preach it to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, building from Romans chapter 1 through 5, is answering the argument that's burning in the minds of these Roman Christians and in many of us. And here's the question. If good deeds are worthless for earning salvation, then why do good deeds? Or put another way, if God says that we're saved by grace 
and not through works, then won't that kind of grace-oriented gospel lead us to immoral living? I mean, if we can sin, why not just keep on sinning if grace is going to cover us? It's a very logical question because, I mean, if you don't have to work for anything, won't you just be enabled and then game the system? And isn't it enabling to say you're, you're saved by grace? You've got, you know, you've got no part in your salvation. Jesus saved you simply by his grace through faith. Well, what helps me to understand it is a story that Hugh and Rachel Keller told me. How many of you know Hugh and Rachel Keller? They were just home. Uh, they went to Awaken for a long time, and now they're living very far away in Abu Dhabi. And they said that the natives of that country, the Emirates, that they receive a free check from the government, absolutely free, just because they're natives, because of oil money. And it's a big check. They don't work, none of them. And he said, actually, that they're all very boring because they don't have a vocation. They don't do anything. They just buy stuff. They've never had to work. Everybody else works for him. You have the Filipinos that do one job. You have the Americans that come in that do another job. You have another nationality that does another job. And I think that typically when we are enabled, it makes us less than, right? But if we're talking about crossing the Atlantic, none of us are going to be able to swim that. We need help. We need something that floats to carry us across. So it is in Christ. We not only have wealth, we have heavenly wealth. Ephesians 1 says that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That in fact, we're co-heirs with Christ. We're royalty. So we not only draw a spiritual check, so to speak, we reign with Christ in his kingdom, the Bible tells us. But shouldn't we have to earn such a great honor and this great list of benefits? Shouldn't we have to earn it? I mean, what about the person who claims they know Christ but struggles to follow him? Like all of us and every Christian in the world, every Christian who's ever lived. Shouldn't we be shunned by God? Because in many ways, we're like those, those emirates. We get this free check. But yet we continue to struggle. So the question dealt with in Romans 6 is pretty simple. What difference does the gospel make in us? What difference does it make? The church has the same divorce rate as the rest of the U.S. The church has the same addiction to pornography, the same other addictions, alcoholism, and all the rest as the world. What difference is it supposed to make in us? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes sin feels irresistible to me. It seems like it would just sometimes be easier to give in because I know I'm going to heaven when I die, so why not just enjoy the world? You ever feel that way? You ever tempted with that thought? If you say no, you're lying. So can't we just sin because of grace? The short answer from Paul in Romans 6.2 is by no means. What he's really saying there, the verbiage there is that is a ridiculous argument. It, that doesn't even make sense. We'll see as we unpack this passage that you can only suggest a sinful lifestyle as an option for a believer if you don't understand the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, it'll feel like, well, I might as well just sin because I'm going to go to heaven when I die. 
We know from chapters one through five, what God, Paul explains to us what God has accomplished for us in salvation, that because of Christ's finished work, because he died, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, and now lives to make intercession for us and has sent us the Holy Spirit, because of his finished work, now we know what the gospel has done in us, what is done to change us, to restore us to God. Here in chapter 6, and for many chapters here in Romans uh, uh, on, here from Romans 6 on, it addresses what the gospel does in us, how it changes us. Not just what it's done for us, but what it does in us to accomplish the death of sin and new life in Christ. So we're going to look at the answer to three questions, and I believe in at looking at these answers will help us to understand what the gospel has done in us, what visible difference it should make in our lives. So first, I want to ask the question, what does we died to sin mean? What does that even mean? Because I still struggle with sin, and so do you. So what does that mean, that we died to sin? It's easy to gloss over this statement and fail to think. See, the problem with many of us Christians today is we don't want to think. We want to turn on Netflix. We want to turn on the radio. We, we don't want to use this imagination God has given us, this intellect God has given us to ruminate and focus and obsess over and live for this truth that we are dead to sin. We need to think about what it means. And sometimes it helps me to think about something, what something means by looking at the negative, what it does not mean first. So here's what it does not mean. First, we died to sin does not mean that once we come to know Christ, we no longer have a desire to sin. We still do, right? If salvation destroyed our desire to sin, then there'd be no need for verses 12 through 14, where Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies and do not offer the parts of your body to, as instruments of wickedness. And then the glorious truth in Romans 7 as well, where Paul says, the good I want to do, I don't do, and the bad I know I shouldn't do, I do. He wouldn't say that if we no longer had the desire to sin. Those admonitions wouldn't be there. There's another false assumption we should look at. We died to sin does not mean that we simply should not sin. Like, hey, you're dead to sin, so don't, don't sin now. It's just not fitting for a Christian to sin. It means more than that. Because where number one is too extreme, number two is not enough. Romans 6 says we died to sin, not simply we ought not to sin. It says we died and finally, the third, and this one is, is maybe the most tricky, but the third hole we can fall into, we died to sin does not mean that we're no longer guilty of sin, because Paul's already said that, and it's true. We have been pardoned. We are, Jesus has pronounced us not guilty, but Paul isn't being redundant here. He's not simply saying we've been pardoned. He's saying we've died to sin. That's something, we've been pardoned is a great truth, but this is something different. We have died to sin. That's a different truth. So now that we've looked at what we died to sin does not mean, what it doesn't mean, I want to look at what it does mean. In one sentence, we died to sin means that the instant someone is rescued from their sin and brought into a relationship with Jesus, they are no longer dominated or ruled by sin. Remember Romans chapter 5, verse 21. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead. Rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin did reign in us, but it's not in charge anymore. 
Also in Romans 1, Paul says that outside of Jesus, we are given over to our sins. That is, before we lived in Christ, before we received Christ. And that section reminded us that our sinful desires ruled over us so much that we couldn't even see sin. We couldn't even see it. And even the sin that we could see, we had no real power to resist it. Even the things that we felt bad about, we might just do commit different sins, but we lived in a state of selfishness where our worldview was self, not God. Our emotions were filtered through self, not God. Our relationships were filtered through self and not God. Now we can resist and even rebel against our normal and natural sinful nature that we were born with because we've been spiritually reborn in Christ. In Colossians 1.13, it says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. He has changed our citizenship, spiritually speaking, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And then Acts 26.18, To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So by grace, we've been given this gift of faith. It's a gift. It's not just believing in God. It's a gift of faith that allows us to receive this new passport that says, saved by God's grace. It did say sinner, and now it says saved by God's grace, and we enter into God's kingdom, set apart for him with his people. So maybe this will help us understand this struggle, though, of, hey, we are in this new kingdom, but we still struggle, don't we? In Nazi-occupied Germany, there was the bad army, let's say, the Nazis, And there was the good army who invaded, the allied forces. They invaded, and they pushed out the Nazi regime. Now, when they did that, the Nazis no longer had any positional power over Germany, did they? The government was no longer led by the Nazis. The dictatorship of Hitler was gone. But, as anyone who's ever served in the military knows, when there is a big conflict there are still, still guerrilla fighters left in that area. There are still ones who will attack that new regime. Now, they have no real force. They're just hiding in dark places. And these guerrilla fighters, fighters can sneak out. And if you're, you're not putting yourself under the protection of the good army, then you might get sniped. But they can no longer rule over you but they can sure harass you. So it is in Christ. We are no longer ruled by sin. We have the power over, we have power over sin if we'll grab a hold of it. And we'll get more into some application here in a moment, but I want to kind of take a a view from 10,000 feet first. So the discussion on what died to sin means and what it does not mean, I believe helps us to, to... truly understand our identity in Christ at a so much deeper level, but it begs a second question. How do we die to sin? How do we die to sin? Well, it says in Romans 6, 3, or don't you know, and I read this at baptism, just about every, every baptism, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this isn't saying that we're dead to sin because of our baptism. It's saying that baptism is an outward symbol of a spiritual reality, that we now belong to the kingdom of God. So when we believe, that's when Jesus rescues us from sin and death. We're united to Jesus. So what's true of Jesus is now true of us. 
And Jesus died once and for all, for all sins. So we died with him. And guess what? Dead people don't sin, do they? Dead people don't sin. Our sin nature has died in Christ. But there's more. Our union with Jesus does more than just being dead to sin. In Romans 6, 4, it says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So because Jesus, we share in his death, we also now share in his resurrection, meaning we have an abundant life, a new life in him. So the question posed in Romans 6, 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, finds its answer in the fact that we share in Jesus' resurrection. By no means, because we're resurrected. We're not going to keep on sinning. Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the question of can't we just keep on sinning since we have a free pass to heaven is ridiculous when, you realize, when we realize that we're raised with Christ. We have new life, new hope, a new filter on our emotions, a new filter on our relationships, a new filter on what happened in the past, a new filter on what our future looks like. All is new. So to say I'm just going to keep on sinning because now I'm riding the grace train in light of the resurrection is like someone who's been freed from their captor, who says, I know I'm free and I've got my own house now and my own life, but I'd rather go back up in the basement of my, cap, my kidnapper where I'm comfortable. Sin becomes comfortable, but when we take just, and many of you can identify with this, when you take just two steps away from a struggle, an area of struggle, and you have three days of victory, five days of victory, 20 days of victory, all of a sudden you just see it. You see that Jesus is so much better. He's just so much better, and I've been fooled. It really, that, that, that illustration of going back into the kidnapper's basement actually doesn't even come close. We see that it just felt so strong. It felt like I had to walk out of this sin. But when I counted myself dead to sin, I experienced the resurrection. And it's so much better. This new life is so much better. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So we need to remember, focus on, meditate, obsess over, not neglect the reality of our resurrection. And there are some implications here in this new life we have in Christ. In verse 8, it says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. So the resurrection has triumphed over sin and will triumph in us. And it should be noticeable. There should be a decreased pattern of sin in the life of a believer. The way someone knows if they're in Christ, one of the ways, according to 1 John, is a decreased pattern of sin. That, that is... Uh, to be more precise, we no longer tolerate sin. We might still struggle, but we don't tolerate it. We don't just, we don't swim in it. It disgusts us. We want to be in union with Christ. We may stumble for a time, but we come back. So I want to get real practical here. We've been talking about, you know, again, 10,000 uh, 10, foot perspective on these truths, on what the gospel does in us. But this last question 
helps us to see and walk in the reality of the gospel. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's the so what question. So what? So if you haven't been listening, here's your time. Uh, so how are we to walk out the resurrected life? In Romans 6, 11, catch this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This phrase, count yourselves dead to sin, contains an accounting term. It's count. Other translations say, reckon yourselves dead to sin. So we're to apply what's already been done for us. We're not dead to sin because of what we did. We're dead to sin because of what Jesus did. So why count something? Again, some translations say reckon yourself to something that's already been done. Why should I count myself dead to sin if it's already been done for me? Well, because we forget, don't we? There are unclaimed funds all the time, trust funds typically. Did you know that go unclaimed? People have a fortune sitting in a trust fund for them, but either no one told them or they forgot, or you know, I guess a host of other reasons, that that money is available. So they are positionally rich. That credit card debt doesn't need to be their credit card debt anymore. Those financial troubles don't have to be their, but they're living in experiential poverty, although they are positionally rich. That's why we are to count ourselves dead to sin. Just that simple truth, if you don't walk away with anything else tonight, I am dead to sin. Can we say that together? I am dead to sin. Unclaimed riches are the problem for many of us believers. We can fall into the trap of feeling like sin is unavoidable, it's irresistible. The first step to walking in victory, to cashing in on our resurrected life, is to simply consider ourselves dead to sin. I'm dead to this. I know my emotions are telling me that I have to do it. I know it feels like it's the only thing to do, but I'm dead to it. That's not me anymore. Because notice that Paul uses the word know or believe four times in this passage. In verses 3, 6, 8, and 9. The reason he's doing that is because we're dumb and we forget. And left to our own devices, the gospel will become about sitting in church and then doing whatever the heck we want for the rest of the week. As if the most powerful thing done in all of redemptive history, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection have no real power. And we live in experiential spiritual poverty day after day not knowing that we're crawling around in a sewer when we could be living in a mansion. Satan's deceptions always first take place in our minds. That is the battleground. And then lies, deceptions from the enemy, spill out into our emotions, and then they leak out into our actions. So we start to think, you know, man, maybe that bottle or that pill or that immoral relationship or... Uh, whatever else, that sounds really good about now. It's in the mind. And then it spills out into our emotions if we entertain it. I, I gotta do this. I gotta, I just gotta do it. I gotta do it. I gotta do it. And then it spills out into our actions. But we win the battle in our mind. The enemy knows that. The enemy knows that. And our battle plan could not be more simple. Like last week, I said to remember that I am in Christ, that that's my new status. I'm not in depression. I'm not in immorality. I'm not defined by the fact that I had an abortion 15 years ago. I'm not defined by the fact that I've slept with more people than I can count. I'm not defined by the fact that I think about my body way more than I should. I am in Christ, 
It is that simple. I'm in Christ. And to say that a million times a day and to add to that tonight, I'm dead to sin. I'm in Christ, which means I'm dead to sin. And now we walk in the resurrected life. So as we rejoice in our resurrected life, there'll be signs that we're walking in it. Our sin will grieve, grieve us. Like I said, we'll become repulsed by it. I want to read you a testimony of a pastor. It's a little bit of a lengthy read, but it's worth it. Uh, his name is Mike Quarles. And it's titled, The Strange Odyssey of a Legalistic Preacher Who Became a Drunk, Discovered Grace, and Found Freedom. And he says, when I became a Christian in 1970, at the age of 33, I was really excited. This is what I'd been looking for all my life. At last, I had peace and something to live for, and I hit the ground running. I went to church every time the doors were open. I wanted my life to count for God. I pursued preparation for ministry with great determination and zeal. I was the president of a local brokerage firm, but I gave that up and headed off to seminary. How could I not take the message of eternal life to a lost and dying world? I graduated from seminary and went into the pastorate. It was my custom to spend at least an hour a day in Bible study and prayer. I memorized chapters of scripture. I fasted and prayed. I read hundreds of books and listened to numerous tapes. I went to every conference that came to town. I witnessed enthusiastically to anything that moved. It was my duty. How could I do less? My children didn't like to ride in the car with me because I would pick up hitchhikers so I could witness to a captive audience. Julia, my wife, didn't like to go out in public with me because I would witness to strangers while we were waiting for our ice cream cones and Baskin-Robbins. I tried to do everything I had been taught in order to live the successful Christian life. What was the result of all this? My wife and children didn't respect me because in my zeal to make them be good Christians, I became legalistic, harsh, and unloving. My marriage was a mess and my personal life was in shambles. I came to the realization that everything I'd learned about living the Christian life was just not working for me. Can any of you relate to that? It's just not working. I'm doing everything I know to do. It's just not working. Finally, I came to grips with reality and left the pastorate and went back to being a stockbroker. I became the manager of the E.F. Hutton office in Birmingham, Alabama, and soon was making more money than I'd ever made in my entire life. But I felt like such a failure. I felt like I'd failed God, my wife, my children, and my church. I turned back to my old ways of dealing with my problems and began to drink. In a short period of time, I became a full-fledged alcoholic. I didn't plan to be one and began trying everything I knew to stop, but nothing seemed to help. This is what I tried. There are 30 things he tried. Consistent quiet time, Bible study, fasting, visitation evangelism, Christian 12-step program, accountability group, hundreds of AA meetings and five different sponsors, Christian counselors, Christian psychiatrists, secular psychiatrists, Christian psychologists, secular psychologist, addiction counselor, flew to New Jersey and spent three days with an addiction specialist, secular treatment, Christian treatment center, uh, read every book on addiction I could find, healing of memory session, baptism of the spirit session, casting out of demons session twice, public confession, group therapy, took the drug and abuse, disciplined by my church, rigid schedule with every minute planned, hundreds of hours studying scriptural principles, memorized chapters of scripture, discipleship groups, prayer, promises to God and to my wife. And this was the, the breakthrough moment. I was driving along, listening to a tape, and it was about Romans chapter 6. And it came to verse 6 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been free from sin. What is this? I've died with Christ, and I've been free from sin? That's what I need, but how do I make it true in my life? Then the speaker was saying, it's not something you do, it's something that's been done. Our death with Christ is past The old person that we were was crucified, and anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And then he said, you died to sin, Romans 6.2. You are dead to sin, Romans 6.11. I know you don't act dead to sin. You don't feel dead to sin. You don't even look dead to sin. You think that it's just positional truth, that that's just the way God sees me. That's just what God says about me. Listen, the way God sees you is reality. What God says is the truth. It was at that moment that the light came on, and at that moment, I knew the truth. I knew I had died with Christ, and the old sin-loving sinner had died and was no more. Oh, I had believed the lie and acted like it all these years, but that was not who I was. I now knew the truth, that I was dead to sin, whether I acted like it, felt like it, looked like it, or anyone else believed it, because God said it, I was. I also knew the truth that I was free because anyone who has died has been freed from sin, Romans 6, 7. Jesus says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, John 8, 32. I had believed the lie that I was hopeless, helpless in alcoholism and had lived in bondage all the years that I believed it. But less than 24 hours away from being drunk, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I, I, Mike Quarles, was a child of God who was in Christ, Because I had died with Christ, was dead to sin, and had been freed from sin. Free at last, free at last, praise God, I was free at last. Rejoicing in my discovery of this truth and my freedom, I ran in and told my friends, shouting to them that I was free. I grabbed the phone and called Julia, which is his wife, and tried to explain to her what had happened. She thought I was on another wild goose chase and wouldn't even hear me out. It didn't dampen my enthusiasm, though, as I knew who I was in Christ and that I was free. I've never doubted it since that day. Years and years and years of freedom. He tried everything. The battle is in the mind. You, if you know Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin. But I get angry with my kids. I get angry with my spouse. I get angry in traffic. More often than not, I'd rather punch somebody in the face than talk about than talk to them. You are dead to sin. Jesus didn't come to give us a bunch of strategies to manage sin. He had one strategy that he used to demolish and destroy sin in our life. And it happened on Calvary. We can't miss it. We're dead to sin. When tempted, we say we're dead to sin. When it seems like our insecurities are flaring up so much because of what someone said or did to us or what we think about ourselves when we look in the mirror and our insecurities are screaming through our emotions to our brain, we say, I am dead to sin. Even when the truth seems like a tiny uh, tiny little needle in a giant haystack, we'll see it ignite all those evil, destructive, depressing thoughts. And burn them away. And all that will remain of the power of the Spirit that helps us to live the resurrected life. And we'll say, that sin seems so weak now. It seems so strong and irresistible when I was in the moment. But when I claimed my freedom, it 
It's like a little child raising up their arms and saying, Mom, Dad, I, hurt, pick me up. They just cry out. And a good parent comes and picks them up. Christians, we sin because we forget who we are and our thoughts matter. We're dead to sin. I'm going to skip quite a bit of what I had planned to say because I don't think I should say it anymore. It's not wrong, just I don't think relates to where the Spirit's moving here. That's it. Amen. You're dead to sin. You are dead to sin. That insecurity that you felt for decades on sin, uh, decades on end, can I give you some advice from the scriptures? Stop trying. Romans 7 says that the law just, it irritates our flesh. That is our sin nature. We just replace sin after sin as we go from self-help program to self-help program. We manage, we mask over, we perfume our sin. And Jesus wants to eradicate it. Jesus didn't come to bring a self-help program. The enemy would make you think that it's complicated. That it's not just complicated, it's impossible. That these are just positional truths. These are just, this is just some pie-in-the-sky theology that's never going to really make a difference in your life. One of my saddest moments was when I was at a funeral, conducting a funeral for a young man that had committed suicide who knew Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Satan's goal is to lie to us and then kill us and destroy us. And if he can't do that, he'll kill our faith. He'll make us Sunday Christians that sit in a chair but whose hearts are far from God where functionally we live as atheists with lives and hearts that are unchanged. We're dead to sin and the resurrected life is so much better. Stop trying. Worship team, you can come on up. Stop trying and start declaring 10 times a day, 50 times a day, 100 times a day, I'm dead to sin. I don't want to talk to this person at school. I don't want to talk to this person at work. You're having some ugly thought. You want to just retreat into self. You want to isolate. It's so much easier to isolate. I'm dead to sin. That's not who I am anymore. I can walk across the room and talk to this person and love this person. I don't want to have a quiet time this morning. I'd rather just sleep in. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. I've risen with Christ. The old man of apathy and indifference and laziness is dead. I may not feel it. But 2 Timothy says, I haven't been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. That is now who I am. Many of you may not know a whole lot of scripture. That's okay, because you can learn these things. I'm in Christ. Say that. I am. I am dead to sin. I am. I have risen with Christ. I have. I'm in Christ, I'm dead to sin, I've risen with him. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for these truths. Lord, I pray now that you would, Holy Spirit, take these truths like a stick of dynamite and plant them in the rocky areas of our hard heart and light the fuse. Lord, and, and, and blow off all the things that are, are obstacles between us and you as we claim our position in you day in and day out, Lord, I pray we would just see stuff falling off of us. Lord, and what, what seemed like it was true for other people, we would start to see it as true for ourselves, that there really is joy beyond description, mouth-watering, wonderful, 
undescribable joy that can change the old man or woman who's been stuck in sin for 70 years in a moment and can make the heart of a tiny little three-year-old so happy that they dance and sing and run around when we have our worship. Lord, would you blow the dust out of our hearts, out of our soul, and help us to see this gospel afresh once again, Lord, that we would not be comfortable with sin. Lord, that any areas of our lives that haven't been redeemed, we would say, enough, I'm not going to live in this anymore. I'm I'm not going to do it. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for the freedom that you give us. Lord, as we take our offering here, please use these gifts to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.